True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The gunshots echo through the house. There are no screams or arguments anymore. Just a few gasps of disbelief. And then, silence. Soon the silence becomes ominous. The family that once lived in the house is gone. And their killer, the one they should have been able to trust the most, is on the run. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 89, The Hunt Family Massacre. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. If you're listening to this podcast in bed, you should know that the quality of each day is decided the night before. Sleep your way to a new and more vibrant you. Behind every mover and shaker, there is a perfect mattress. And Dialabed has your back, with South Africa's widest range of bed brands. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Sally M and Promise for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout-out and monthly exclusive episode that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon, so if you prefer not to hear the ads, head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, Head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, print crowd for all your printing requirements, and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discount and support the show at the same time. And you can also get 10% off when you order from Wallpaper Online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser, and parole officer to listen, and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. Familicides, or the killing of family members by a perpetrator who is related to the victims, are often classed as black swan events. But honestly, the more I do this work, the more I start to wonder about that. Sure, the nature of the crimes change, and the role of the perpetrator in the family is different. But I've covered many family murders on this podcast, and there are many more to come, sadly. Of course, as tragic as it is when a parent kills their spouse and children, it always feels even more shocking when the killer is a child. Not only can we not fathom how someone could kill their own parents and siblings, but the mere fact that the perpetrator is a minor is mind-blowing. 
Today's case was not hugely publicized when it happened, simply because of when it happened, and the fact that we weren't big on digital and social media at the time. Unfortunately, due to the offender in this case being a minor, we don't have access to court records, but the case has been covered in two books which I read in researching this case, namely Blut is Dinner as Water by Shanae Kemp and Bad Kids by Chris Carsten. So let's get into episode 89, The Hunt Family Massacre. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Ronald Frederick Hunt, known as Ronnie, was born in 1953. The woman who had become his wife and the mother of his three sons, Elizabeth Katharina, also known as Elise, was born the following year. Ronnie and Elise met and married in 1975, and Elise gave birth to their first son, Ronnie Jr., in 1976. Within three years, their next son, Rion, followed, and then, in 1986, the couple welcomed a third son, Elro, into the family. The family were based in the Free State province of South Africa for most of their lives. When the boys were born, they lived in Sienekal, but they soon moved to Reitz a small maize, wheat and cattle farming town located in the east of the Free State. With a population of just 3,362 people, as at the 2011 census, Rates is the epitome of a small farming town. With the town being so small, opportunities for work were limited. The two main employers in the town are Fonsale Steelworks and VKB, an agricultural co-op group. Both Ronnie and Elise would become employed by the latter company. Ronnie sold vehicles for an offshoot company of VKB, and Elise worked in admin in VKB's offices. Ronnie was an avid golfer, and had spent many years investing in his hobby. He was also a really good amateur player, and when they moved to Rates, he took over management of the Rates Golf Club. Ronnie and his sons, particularly his eldest and namesake, would spend hours on the golf course each weekend. The Hunt family was well-known in rates and well-liked. Soon their two older sons moved out of the house and studied and found work in Pretoria, but they visited their parents and youngest brother often. With rates being such a small town, the schools fill up quickly, and as a result, the Hunt's youngest son, Elro, had to attend a boarding school in Fixburg for his high school years. The boy was well liked at school, as later actions by his principal and fellow school pupils would show, but he did not excel academically, and it seemed that as the years wore on, and by 2002 when he started grade 10, his academic performance as well as his behaviour at home had drastically deteriorated. It's difficult for us to know exactly what the situation was in the Hunt home, but by all accounts, the Hunts seemed to be engaged and caring parents. Both their older sons chose to spend significant amounts of time with their parents, even after they'd left home, indicating perhaps that their relationships with their parents were good 
and stable. Alro too seemed happy enough, right up until the middle of his teens, when he started to rebel, and things went south. The people of Rates were not entirely surprised to see yet another teenager in their town acting out. In fact, it was an issue that even the police in the area had recently become concerned with. Bored teens were turning to alcohol and parties to pass the time in a town where very little else happened. At the beginning of 2002, specialised police investigators from Bethlehem had been brought in to assess a string of incidents which rates police feared pointed to occult activity in their town. The heavy wooden door of the local church had been set alight. Vandalism had occurred in the local cemetery, and rumour had it that child graves had been specifically targeted. Investigators looked into the events, but couldn't find anything that pointed to anything more than wild acts of vandalism, possibly by groups of intoxicated and stoned teenagers. In the Hunt household, Ronnie and Elise were pretty concerned about Alro too. For the last few months, every time he came home for the weekend or for holidays, there were arguments. The boy would come home and almost immediately head out to party with his friends. When his mother or father tried to force him to stay home, he became belligerent. He often came home in the wee hours of the morning, reeking of alcohol, and his father was eventually concerned enough that he approached a doctor friend for advice. On Thursday, the 12th of September, 2002, Ronnie made a phone call to his friend, Dr. Leon van der Linde. Van der Linde had known Alro since he was a young child and had never known him to be unruly or willful. So when his friend Ronnie told him that he was concerned about his youngest son's new friends and the amount of hard liquor drinking they were doing, van der Linde agreed to meet with Ronnie to discuss an action plan. The appointment was made for Monday, the 16th of September, but Ronnie Hunt would not make that appointment. That weekend, the Hunts were expecting their two oldest sons to visit for the weekend, but on Friday they heard that only Ronnie Jr. would be coming, as Rian had some extra shifts at work he needed to pick up. Elise and Ronnie Sr., thought that it might be a good time to have their oldest son chat with Alro about his behaviour. Perhaps he would take advice from his brother if he wouldn't take it from them. On Saturday morning, Ronnie Jr. pulled his younger brother aside and had a chat. He told Alro that he was worried about the friends he was hanging around with and the amount of alcohol he was consuming. Unfortunately, Alro didn't take any more heed to his brother's concerns than he had when his parents had chided him. He told his brother he didn't want to talk about it, popped his cell phone in his pocket, and said he was going to watch the rugby match with his friends. With that, he left, leaving Ronnie Jr. even more concerned than he'd been before. That afternoon, Alro went to a friend's house. They watched the rugby and drank two beers each and then opened a bottle of brandy, which they managed to finish between them. During the game, Alro's cell phone rang. He looked at the screen and saw it was his father calling, and ignored the call. When the game had ended, the boys dispersed, and a pretty intoxicated Alro started to walk home. 
When he arrived, he found his parents and brother on the couch in the TV room. The family had been watching the game together, and Ronnie had phoned Alro because he wanted his youngest son to join them. When Ronnie Sr. saw the condition of his youngest son, he demanded to know whether Alro was drunk. Alro admitted he was. His father asked him why he hadn't answered his phone, and Alro responded with a cheeky answer, proceeding to rant at his father to leave him alone to do what he wanted. Ronnie lost his cool and slapped Alro. The boy, infuriated, stormed to his room. In a cloud of fury and alcohol, Alro Hunt actually walked straight past his own bedroom door and instead entered his parents' bedroom. He knew where his mother kept her gun and her ammunition, and that's exactly where he headed. Within minutes, even with his brandy-heavy hands, Alro had the gun loaded. Then he started walking down the passage. He was headed back to the TV room, but his parents had stood up and started to walk toward his room. They wanted to talk to their son. Enough was enough. The three met in the middle of the passageway, and Alro did not hesitate. He raised the gun and shot his father point-blank in the face. Then he quickly moved the gun to his mother and shot her once between the eyes. Both collapsed onto the floor, Ronnie Sr.'s head resting on his wife's lap as they fell together. Ronnie Jr., hearing the gunshots, stood up from the couch and started to move toward the passageway to the bedrooms, but his little brother was already coming around the corner, and with the gun raised, Alro fired a bullet into his brother's face too. But Ronnie Jr. moved at the last moment, and the shot was not immediately fatal. He fell to the ground, and his younger brother didn't hesitate to fire another shot into his head. Alro would only stand frozen in shock at what had just happened for a moment. Then he was moving again. He took his father's bucky keys, pocketed the gun, and drove to a friend's house. There he continued drinking. His friends would later say they had no clue anything was wrong. Alro had seemed absolutely fine. He'd laughed and chatted just the same way he had earlier that afternoon. No one had any idea that back at the hunt home, there were three dead bodies. The party Alro was at that night had consequences for several of the attendees. One boy decided to steal a car and go on a joyride on his own. He ended up mowing down a traffic light before being arrested. With his alcohol levels refilled, Alro left his friend's house and realized that his father's bucky was low on fuel. Even though he'd say he didn't want to return home, he needed money, so he went back to the house where his family lay slain by his own hand and stole his father's cell phone and a small amount of cash in his wallet. He then returned to the party for a little while before driving out to Friesburg, selling his father's cell phone to a man he met in town and using the cash to fill up the bucky with fuel. On Sunday, Elro drove back to Rates. Someone would later claim to have seen him at church that morning, but that was never confirmed. 
On Sunday afternoon, he and his friends got into his father's bucky and drove to Bethlehem. The new Austin Powers movie was showing in cinemas, and the movie's spoof humour was perfect for a group of teenage boys. They spent the afternoon eating popcorn, sipping on slush puppies, and laughing at the movie. None of Alro's friends could have guessed that there was anything the matter. He seemed to enjoy the movie just as much as everyone else. After the movie, the boys had dinner at a restaurant, drinking a beer each. Alro then dropped his friends off at home and headed for Ficksburg. He drove in the direction of his boarding school, but ended up spending the night in the bucky at a petrol station. By Monday morning, Elro Hunts knew the clock was ticking. No one had discovered the bodies yet, but as he woke, hung over and edgy in the bucky, with the first beams of sunlight piercing through the dawn, that was all about to change. Emily Moffat-King had worked for the Hunt family for several years. On that Monday, as she had done every Monday before that, she made her way to the Hunt home in Rates to start her cleaning duties before Elise and Ronnie left for work. On that morning, though, when she arrived, the home was strangely quiet. She would ordinarily just ring the doorbell and Elise would open for her, smiling and greeting, and welcome her in. But no one answered. Emily walked around the house and found a sliding door slightly open. Certain that the hunts just hadn't heard her arrive in their early morning preparations, she called into the house through a gap in the door. She didn't want to just enter, but there was no response, and as she stood outside, she noticed something red smeared on the side of the sliding door. Concerned, she stuck her head inside and saw more blood covering the carpet of the TV room. Emily fled to get help. While the Hunt home was being swarmed by police officers, Elro Hunt was driving to Bloemfontein. His aunt lived there, and perhaps his intention had been to go to her house, maybe to confess, maybe to do something else. But for some reason, he decided against it. Elro knew that he had very little time left. As soon as the bodies were found, he would be a wanted man. With his mother's gun still in his possession, he briefly considered suicide. When Wraith's police arrived at the scene, they found the bodies of Roddy Jr., Elise, and Ronnie Sr. The position of the bodies was documented. The house was scoured for forensic evidence like fingerprints, and four bullet casings were collected. The Hunt's neighbours were horrified to hear that they'd been so close to three dead bodies for what looked like days, considering the condition of the victims. Police went from house to house, but no one had heard or seen anything of consequence. Some thought they may have heard some muffled cries, but almost everyone in the streets had been watching rugby that night and their attention was elsewhere. Police quickly determined from the bullet casings that the gun used to kill the three victims was very likely the one licensed to Elise Hunt, but the gun was nowhere to be found. Ronnie Senior's cell phone was missing. So was his bucky. 
and perhaps most importantly, 16-year-old Alro Hunt was also nowhere to be found. Police double-checked that he wasn't perhaps at his boarding school, but the principal there confirmed he wasn't. A crowd of neighbours and acquaintances of the Hunts started to form around the house as police cleared the scene and removed the bodies. Just a few months before, a local businessman had been killed in a botched robbery. The people of Rates wondered if this too had been a robbery gone wrong. Rion Hunt, the Hunt's middle son, who'd intended to visit his parents that weekend but had been caught up with work, was in Pretoria when he received the call that would change his life. He immediately left for Rates, hoping beyond hope that his little brother was okay. His mind had not yet even drifted to the possibility that Alro was not a victim, but the perpetrator. One of the easiest ways to move the investigation forward was to find Ronnie's Bucky. Clearly it had been taken by whomever had committed the murders, and whether or not that was Alro, police thought finding it was key. The media can often be an ally to police in situations like this, and Rates police contacted the local radio station. They explained the situation and said it was very sensitive, but they needed people to be on the lookout for the vehicle. The warning was clear, though. If a member of the public spotted the vehicle, they were to call police immediately. They were not to approach it. The driver was likely armed and could be dangerous. While half the Free State was looking for him, Elro Hunt claims he had made a decision. He decided that he was going to go back to Rates, go to his home, and take his own life there among the bodies of his family. As he drove, though, he heard the radio report regarding the bucky he was driving, and he realised the gig was up. Although the radio report did not say why the bucky was being sought, Alro knew that if they were looking for it, that meant his family had been found. He got out and removed one of the vehicle's number plates. The boy would have little time to consider any other options, though. The police weren't just waiting for a member of the public to spot the vehicle. They were actively out in force, searching for Alro too. On a dirt road near Rates, two police officers spotted the vehicle. They put the call out on the radio, and within minutes, Inspector Gerd van der Merwe and Dani Biermann of the murder and robbery units were on Elro's trail. The officers would later testify that when Elro first spotted them, he accelerated and tried to evade them, but they stayed on him, and soon, on the old Twierling Road, he started to slow the bucky. At one point, the officers said it looked as though Elro had held the gun to his head, and they were concerned he was about to take his own life. But then, the boy stuck his hand out the window and tossed the firearm onto the grass. Elro would say that he'd thrown the gun out because he was worried that police would shoot him. He eventually brought the vehicle to a complete stop and put his hands in the air. He shouted to the police officers that he was not armed, and within seconds, 16-year-old Elro Hunt was in custody. 
the boy cried as he was handcuffed. The district surgeon took blood samples from Alro upon his arrest to check for alcohol and drugs. As news began to spread of the murders and the arrest of a 16-year-old boy in the matter, a weird two-sided reporting system emerged in the small town. By law, Alro's identity could not be released as he was a minor, but everyone who knew the family knew it was him who'd been arrested. Articles from the time very carefully tread the line between not revealing his identity and making it quite clear that the family who died also had a 16-year-old son who had not been injured in the shooting. The truth was not hard to find for anyone who sought it. Elro Hunt appeared in court for the first time the day after his arrest. He looked dazed and often cried. Some of his school friends from Fixburg attended the hearing along with the principal of his school. They said that they were there to show him support and encourage him. The principal said that Alro was a quiet student who'd never caused any problems at school, and with his parents gone, he wanted to provide some moral support to the young man. The principal said that although the boy was not academically gifted, he seemed to have been finding his feet in a technical trade at the school, and he was a great golfer for the school team. The principal and students were allowed to chat with Alro briefly. The boy was handed a Bible and then he was led away to be transported to a juvenile offender's facility in Kruenstadt. The schoolchildren who arrived at the court that day were experiencing something that nothing in their lives could have prepared them for, and their reactions showed it. Most cried and told reporters they couldn't believe Alro could have done what he was accused of. One girl said her family had lived next door to the Hunts for eight years and she'd never dreamed he could have killed anyone, let alone his family. She reasoned he must have snapped for some reason. Something must have triggered him. In the rumour mill of the small town, it emerged that Elise and Ronnie's marriage had gone through some very rough patches. When Alro was five years old, the couple had actually divorced, but they'd remarried again soon after. Some friends of the family recalled how, as a child, Elro had been terrified of raised voices. He would run to his mother and bury his head in her legs if anyone in the home shouted. Rian Hunt was in complete shock. Not only had his father, mother and brother been brutally ripped away from him, but now he had to face the fact that his own brother had been their murderer. That Friday, with Elro still incarcerated at the juvenile facility and not allowed to attend, his parents and brother were laid to rest. Shortly before the funeral, Rian visited his brother. The pair cried and held each other. Rian told Elro that he forgave him and that he would support him through the difficult times that lay ahead. Four hundred people attended the funeral that day, with Rion cutting a sad figure as he stood at his mother's graveside for a long time and draped a Western Province rugby flag over his father's coffin. The families of Elise and Ronnie were understandably completely devastated and shocked too. Elise's brother-in-law expressed that no one in the family had seen anything like this coming, 
and they felt like their grief was now utterly complicated by the legal proceedings of his nephew. At his next appearance in court, Elro's lawyer, now working with his brother Rion as his guardian, applied to the court to have the boy moved to a mental health facility in Bloemfontein. They wanted a full psychological assessment to be carried out before the proceedings went any further. Elro would remain in the mental health facility for a month before being moved back to Kronstadt to the juvenile offenders facility. Family, including his brother Rion, visited him regularly. They said that with each passing day, he seemed to get quieter and thinner. Eventually, in May 2003, proceedings started in the murder case of the Hunt family. The hearing would be conducted behind closed doors, with only close family members present due to Alro still being a minor. Several family members had come for the hearing, some perhaps needing to hear him say the words himself to actually, finally believe it. And he did. Alro, having turned 17 in custody, pled guilty to having shot and killed his parents and brother. The judge accepted the plea and immediately convicted him of three counts of murder and one of the illegal possession of a firearm and ammunition. There was always going to be matters of mitigation and aggravation of sentence in a case in which the perpetrator had displayed two such diverse sides. The defence would use the psychological assessment to state that although Elro did not have any psychiatric conditions that could have led to his actions, he did have a below-average IQ on the whole. His excessive alcohol use on the day of the crime would also be put forward as a mitigating factor. He snapped, the defence said, after his father had struck him, he'd been angry and the alcohol meant his decision-making was impaired. Teenagers do have less developed decision-making centres when compared to adults. They're far more likely to make impulsive decisions, but crucially, the still-developing part of the brain does not control their understanding of right and wrong. Of course, there are always nuances that influence that, but in this context, we're talking about what is legally right and wrong and Alro knew that it was wrong to kill his family, regardless of whether his decision to take their lives was impacted by alcohol or impulsive decision-making. The defence would also raise that the boy had shown clear remorse in the days since the murders, but this very point would be turned around by the state and used as aggravation instead. Yes, the state said, Al Rohans had cried and seemed utterly devastated since his arrest. But for them, that seemed to point far more toward him being remorseful that his life was now destroyed, rather than the fact that his family was dead. The proof of this lay in his actions before his arrest, they said. For two days, the boy had continued on as though nothing was wrong. Within just a few minutes of firing four bullets into his family, he was sitting, laughing and drinking with his friends. The following day, he watched a movie, ate at a restaurant, and showed no signs of any remorse. 
The only points at which he actually started to crumble at all, the state said, was when his freedom was taken away, and he realized he was going to be in jail for a very long time. Professor Dup Lowe, the head of psychology at Free State University, also assessed Ulro. The renowned psychologist who's testified in many serious criminal matters said that Ulro had a high practical IQ. He could carry out tasks well, but when it came to verbal and academic expressions of that IQ, he was far more limited. Lowe said that it was these latter aspects of IQ that also impact the ability to judge and reason. Elro was assessed to be at a far lower level of emotional maturity than the average 17-year-old. Lowe expressed that when the impulsive decision-making of a teenager is combined with the traits that Elro also had, and then add to that the significant hard liquor use, it was a recipe for disaster. Elro himself believed that his abuse of alcohol had caused him to kill his family. He told Lowe, that if he could turn back time, it wouldn't be to the night of the murders, but rather to the four years before that, when he'd started hanging out with the wrong people and drinking heavily. After weighing up all of the mitigating and aggravating factors and taking into consideration that he was a minor, Judge Van Koller handed down 20 years for each of the murders and an additional 28 months for the firearms charge. These sentences would be served concurrently, so Alro could expect to be under the control of the Department of Correctional Services for 20 years. As he was not given a life sentence, he would, of course, be eligible for parole far sooner than the 20-year mark. And given that we are now already exactly 20 years from the date that the crime was committed, Alro Hunt's sentence has been served. In all honesty, when I find cases where the offender has served their sentence and has already been released, I do think twice about covering the case. I think about the fact that this offender has hopefully gone on to build a life somewhere, and perhaps they would not want their story being told. In this case, the Hunt murders were discussed very recently in a book, so perhaps there's less concern around that. But when I find myself in a quandary about this, I have to go back to why I started this podcast in the first place. For the victims. They still deserve to have their story remembered, regardless of whether the perpetrator has served their sentence or not. I also believe that there is inherent value in telling the stories of young people who make such life-changing decisions. Not every wild and rebellious teenager is going to become a criminal. In fact, most won't. But if telling these stories can help one family to recognize the danger that exists in their teenager's behavior, then perhaps that alone is worth it. I also believe that there are many important themes to be explored in stories like that of the Hunt family. We often wonder how siblings who live with exactly the same parents and experience exactly the same childhood could turn out so vastly different. The Hunt boys are a perfect example. Of three boys, two were seemingly on track for healthy and happy lives, but the third just veered 
totally off the path. Dr. Gabo Mate, a specialist in trauma, says that this is because no two children have the same parents or childhood, even if they grow up in the same home. Each person's perspective of the world is coloured by our own unique makeup of chemistry, genetics, experiences, biases and beliefs. And as such, we all experience the same events differently. What one person experiences as supportive, loving and healthy, another experiences as suffocating, limiting and maddening. It's the same childhood, the same parents, the same upbringing, and two totally different experiences. And perhaps the most terrifying and maybe liberating part of understanding that is knowing that there is very little we can do about it. Your child is going to experience your parenting style through their own individual lens, whether you like it or not. Yes, if you understand that, you can perhaps make modifications that better suit the needs of each individual child. But on the whole, that's not sustainable in the long run. And really, all you can do is your best. Perhaps Ulro Hunt would not have shot his family that night if he hadn't been under the influence of alcohol. Alro indicated that he'd been drinking since the age of 12. Research shows that brain development can be altered and sometimes even permanently damaged by excessive long-term use of alcohol in adolescence. And certainly, he continued to drink after he killed his parents, which may account for some of the numbing of his emotions around what he'd done. Ronnie and Elise Hunt were trying to get their son help. But like any parent of a teenager knows, it's often extremely difficult to get through to them in that stage when they truly believe they know it all. Perhaps we can say they should have tried harder. But in this case, by saying that, we'd be blaming the victims for their own murders. Because let's face it, Millions of teenagers get out of hand, drink, and do all sorts of rebellious things. Very few pick up a gun and shoot their mother between her eyes. Wherever Alro is now, I am certain he lives with his actions daily. Every birthday, Christmas, and other occasion he's not able to spend with his mother, father, and brother. His brother Rion moved to New Zealand and lives there with his own family. He still regularly remembers his parents and brother and expresses how much he misses them. Family murders are terrifying because we don't want to believe that those closest to us are really the most dangerous. We want to be assured that no one we love and certainly no one we've given birth to, could hold a gun to our heads and fire a bullet into us. It's easier to believe that the danger is outside, from a heartless stranger, and not our own blood. But as becomes abundantly clear to me 
the more I cover these types of cases. That really is all a delusion. Perhaps it's one we'd like to hold on to as long as we can. But if we refuse to see the truth, it may just be a fatal mistake. Ronnie Hunt Sr., Elise Hunt, and Ronnie Hunt Jr., rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 89, The Hunt Family Massacre. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm -hmm.